I'm Rob Kirkup. Welcome to How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 63 we head to the pub for a few stiff drinks to calm our nerves, as we will now take a look at an assortment of terrifying taverns, unnerving inns and poltergeist infected public houses. This week we ask just how haunted are the pubs of Tyne and Weir. Listener discretion is advised as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. We have already looked at one of the most haunted pubs in the country way back in episodes 7 and 8 and the 4th Patreon bonus podcast. These episodes all focused on the Wheat Chief Public House in Bolden and the incredible, terrifying events that happened way back in 2004, which led to it being named the most haunted pub in the UK that year. But as you're going to hear across the rest of this episode, Tyne and Weir has more than its fair share of ghostly pubs. The Carriage The Carriage Public House started life as Jesmond Train Station, originally built in 1864. The station was in use for over 100 years until it was closed in 1977 when the metro system was introduced. It was converted into a pub in 1981 and paranormal occurrences have been reported throughout the building ever since. The most commonly reported phenomena by staff and customers is the feeling that somebody has stood behind them waiting to get past. Upon moving out of the way to let the other customer pass, there's nobody there. Although some people have witnessed a grey mist move past them before disappearing. Poltergeist activity is commonplace, with glasses being thrown from the bar, always landing upright and never breaking. A former student at Northumbria University, Stephen McPhail of Middlesbrough, told me of his first-hand experience at the carriage back in early 2002. It was around midday and I had a free couple of hours before I had to return to university. I decided to have a quick pint and read through my notes in preparation for my lectures later that day. I was sat alone and as I read through my notes, I looked up to see my almost full pint glass slowly sliding towards the side of the table. It moved slowly, and I could easily have reached out and stopped it, but I was absolutely dumbfounded, and I just sat and watched it as it dropped off the right-hand side of the table. As it fell, the contents spilled from the glass, and it landed upright with a small amount of lager left in the bottom of it. I picked up the glass wondering if perhaps the table was somehow broken and was not level, I put my notes down and put the glass in the centre of the table. I watched it for almost an hour and it didn't move at all. I also put my pen on the table and that didn't move either. To this day, I am still not sure exactly how the glass moved all by itself. Some of the poltergeist activity has been much more violent than knocking glasses off tables and from the bar. A member of the owner's family was washing up in the kitchen when a fish slice flew across the room striking him in the chest. This was quickly followed by a ladle. The unusual happenings at the carriage have been attributed to the tragic death of two passengers standing on the old station platform who were killed by a bomb during World War II. The Old George Situated in the Cloth Market, in the heart of Newcastle's famous Big Market, the Old George is a popular public house dating back to the 17th century. It was once a coaching inn and retains the original wooden beams and low ceiling. 
Charles I drank at the Old George on a number of occasions in 1646. Charles was being held captive on Pilgrim Street by the Scots, and they allowed him to go and play a round of golf on the shield field, and he would stop off at the coach and inn for a drink. The chair that he sat in while drinking at the Old George remains to this day in the Charles I room. Over the years, many visitors have claimed to see the hazy outline of a ghostly figure sat in the chair. In the bar, footsteps have been heard by staff when the bar has been closed, and nobody else has been present. The footsteps seem to get closer, and then they just stop. A man with a dog has also been seen several times standing at the bar. Upon being approached, the man and his faithful hound simply dissolve away. In the main function room, staff have reported feeling nauseous, and have a constant feeling of being watched. Many members of staff are reluctant to go into that room alone. The Blackie Boy The Blackie Boy, situated in the Grote Market, is one of the oldest public houses in Newcastle. It is a popular drinking spot, especially at the weekend. The Blackie Boy can be quite a creepy place, especially when it's quiet, or late at night after the last customer has left and the doors are being closed for the evening. For a number of years, customers and members of staff have reported unusual happenings, and an eerie feeling of being watched. A male member of staff was once changing a light bulb in a toilet on the second floor. The silence was broken by a woman's voice coming from one of the cubicles. What are you doing in here? The stunned man knew that he was the only person in there. He hesitated. Suddenly the woman's voice screamed out from the empty cubicle. Get out, get out. The terrified man couldn't get out quick enough, his heart racing. A colleague came from downstairs to see what all of the noise was. The two of them returned into the toilets to find it completely empty, and that the screaming had stopped. Back in 2009, the assistant manager of the Blackie Boy, Stephen Hickman, told me of some of the experiences that he had had. On an evening when a medium came to the Blackie Boy, I set up a camera on the first floor and sat completely alone. I called out, asking if there was anyone there, and an orb appeared and floated past the camera. I ran downstairs terrified, not even thinking to pick up my torch or turn the light on. I've not been back upstairs since. He went on to tell me that it's fairly common for the toilet doors in the second floor function room to suddenly swing open violently, or slam shut. They are heavy doors and could not be moved by a draught. The Cooperage the Cooperage on Newcastle's Quayside is one of the oldest surviving buildings in the city, dating back to the 14th century. The exterior of the building has changed little throughout the Cooperage's history, and the large timber beams in the main bar are over 600 years old. Over the centuries, the building has been used as a warehouse, a merchant's house, and in 1853 John Arthur took over the building and used it as a Cooperage, where barrels would have been manufactured and sold at the public houses throughout the city. In 1973, the Cooperage opened as a bar and restaurant, and immediately staff and customers began to experience paranormal happenings. This led to the Cooperage being considered one of the most haunted locations in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. The reports continued until 2009, when it was closed down, and it's since fallen into disrepair. The Grade 2 listed building was placed on the Historic England Heritage at Risk Register in 2017. A petition to save the Cooperage has been signed by almost 28,000 people, demanding that the owners, the apartment group, who appear to have no plans to save the building and do something purposeful with it, should sell it before the historic inn is lost forever. When the building was open to the people of the city, 
One of the most commonly experienced phenomena was the sound of pacing footsteps heard coming from the staircase when the pub was closed and the only people present were staff, none of whom were in that area. Disembodied shouting was also heard on a number of occasions. Full spectral apparitions of four different spirits have been witnessed throughout the building. A former cleaner witnessed a young girl in a shimmering dress, combing her long blonde hair. A number of people have seen a man wearing a top hat watching out of a second floor window. The transparent figure of a woman has been seen in the restaurant area, described by one witness as almost looking like a grainy washed out photograph from the past. And a former member of staff saw a ghostly man appear, then change colour before vanishing before his eyes. The best known ghost in the area is not in the cooperage itself. It is the haunting figure who was seen on the steep stairway named the Long Stairs, running alongside the cooperage. In the 16th century, press gangs were a common sight on Newcastle's quayside, rounding up able-bodied men to work on board their ships against their will, leaving their loved ones unaware of the reason for their men's disappearance. A man by the name of Henry Hardwick was walking along the quayside and was grabbed by a press gang along with a number of other reluctant men. Terrified by the prospect of being forced to go to sea, Hardwick rallied the small band of locals to fight back. They punched and kicked their way to freedom and they made a run for it. Hardwick's freedom was unfortunately short-lived. He was chased to the top of the steep staircase by the side of the cooperage and caught by the press gang. For his reluctance to go willingly, they plucked out his eyeballs before throwing him down the staircase and ending his life. To this day, there are reports by terrified witnesses of a man seen staggering down the stairs with blood running down his face and empty voids where his eyes once were. Back in 2009, not long before the Cooperage called time, potentially for the last time ever, Steve Taylor of Alone in the Dark Entertainment told me of what he encountered on an overnight vigil at the Cooperage, organised by Ghost Hunters Team UK. The Cooperage is a truly amazing place to carry out a ghost hunt, although the place can be a little bit noisy with creaking floorboards and the natural groans of the old building. On the night we spent there at the Cooperage, it did not disappoint. The most amazing thing was witnessed through a night vision camera, but for some inexplicable reason what we saw did not record, even though it appeared to be working fine at the time. We had split up into two teams. I was with Team 1, and we were watching Team 2 conduct a seance through a monitor in another room. We were all shocked when one of our team noticed an extra person sitting in one of the spare seats at the table with the other team. We could all see it. A small girl was sat at the table with them. We contacted them via two-way radio and told them we could see an extra person at the table, but give them no indication as to what that person looked like. They responded and said there was no one else with them, although the air temperature in the room had dropped from 16 degrees Celsius down to just 9. Suddenly the glass started moving and the other team continued to ask questions. The spirit they had contacted was the spirit of a young girl. All the time we could still see the girl. She would shuffle in her seat, then vanish. Then reappear and play with her hair. It was chilling. The Angel View Inn Overlooking the world famous Angel of the North, the Angel View Inn was originally built as a farmhouse and stables. And the original stonework of the buildings can still be seen. Today it is a 27 bedroom hotel, restaurant and conferencing and banqueting venue. 
There is a legend of a young girl turned into a horse in the stables. When the horse bolted and kicked out hitting her in the face, killing her instantly. It is said that she walks the corridors of the Angel View Inn, and those who have seen her have described her as having a hole where her face should be. Staff members have also witnessed a man wandering about on a number of occasions, most commonly near room 14. Upon being approached, he vanishes. One of the housekeepers was cleaning one of the rooms. She cleaned the bathroom and she made the bed. She heard a noise in the bathroom and when she went back in, all of the taps had been turned on fully. The same housekeeper was cleaning room 15 and she had cleaned the room and made the bed. She left the room and as she was closing the door, she noticed an imprint in the bed on the shape of a person and an imprint on the pillow where the head would be. One night customers in room 16 complained that in the middle of the night, they were woken by the sound of children running and laughing outside their room. They were furious, angry at the inconsiderate parents who were letting their children play in the corridors at such a late hour. They opened the door, but there was no children there, and the sound immediately stopped. When they were checking out, they told the staff about the children that they had heard playing. The staff confirmed there were no children staying in the hotel that night. Back in 2009, I spent an evening in the company of Tommy Harrison, who at the time had been the night porter at the Angel View Inn for six years. And he had experienced some of the ghostly goings on at the inn for himself during the many nights that he had spent there. He told me, The previous night porter had no knowledge of the legend of the faceless girl, and one night he sat down and started drawing, and he drew a young girl with a dark void where her face should have been. A medium has told us that they believe the building to be haunted by six spirits. There was one night when a woman and her two young children were staying in room 9. She awoke during the night and one of her sons was sat at the bottom of her bed. She then realised to her horror that both of her children were fast asleep and the child sat at the bottom of her bed was the ghost of a young boy. There have been a lot of disturbances in the kitchens with pots and pans being thrown about when the room has been empty. Interestingly, the Angel of the North itself is believed to be haunted by the ghost of a World War II Nazi recruitment officer. A number of visitors to the Anthony Gormley sculpture have reported seeing the Phantom, most commonly in the twilight, just after the last traces of sunlight have faded away beyond the horizon. The Forge The Forge is one of the oldest buildings in Washington Village, believed to be around 400 years old. It was opened as a blacksmith's to service the old Hall estate. Since the structure was a commercial building, it didn't feature in censuses, making it incredibly difficult to date the building exactly. However, it did appear on the first ever map of Washington in the late 18th century. The building was used as a village smithy until 1954, the last blacksmith being the Dobson family. From 1954, it was open as a variety of different businesses, including a pottery ran by David Gibson, which closed down in 1984. Between 1984 and 1987, the building lay empty, and the fabric of the structure began to deteriorate, and it was very badly vandalised. In 1987, Paul Cajeo bought the building and set about turning it into a restaurant with his wife Pam. The first restaurant here was called The Blacksmith's Table, and it opened its doors on the 20th of May 1988. In 2016, it was sold to Wayne and Kelly Kennedy, and it was renamed The Forge. The building is home to a number of spirits, including a blacksmith who sits at a table with his elbows on his knees, taking a keen interest in what happens within his building. A white lady has been seen, 
often walking through a wall which was once a doorway. It is believed that she may be the ghost of Jane Atkinson, who was ducked to death in 1676 for being a witch. She lost her life in the village pond, which used to be the front of the building. A man sits at a different table, his head resting on his hand, watching people coming and going. There's also a man who stands next to the front door staring at a wall, occasionally looking over his shoulder, but never moving. The most famous of the forger's ghosts is that of Robert Hazlitt. He was a highwayman who robbed in an area called Gateshead Fell, a remote stretch of land including an area of Reckington called the Longbank. Hazlitt robbed a mail coach here in 1770, and this was witnessed by a local postboy. A few days later, Hazlitt was in Washington having his horse shot at the village smithy. The postboy just happened to be in Washington, and he spotted Hazlitt's distinctive horse. He rushed to the local Justice of the Peace. The Justice of the Peace and the postboy went to the blacksmiths, and the smithy explained that the man was a good customer. He'd left his horse with him, and he was going to return later to pick it up. When Hazlitt returned, he was arrested and taken away to face trial. As he was dragged away, he cursed the blacksmith for aiding his capture. Robert Hazlitt was hung in Durham, and his body was hung in a gibbet cage in Reckington as a warning to other would-be highwaymen. The ghost of Robert Hazlitt is often seen in the bar area of the forge. This would have been the area that horses were tied to the hitching rail, which is still present in the bar today. Whenever Hazlitt's ghostly form is seen, he is only seen from the shins up. This is likely due to the original floor level in 1770 being lower than what it is today. I spent a late night here in 2009 when it was the blacksmith's table, in the company of the then owner, Paul Caggio. He told me of the building's ghostly residence over a few drinks. When we first took over the building, we began to experience odd things. My wife and I are both very spiritual people, and we went to a spiritualist church and got a number of messages from the spirits who haunt the blacksmith's table. We've also had lots of customers experiencing things. We had one couple here recently, and it was his birthday. They had been here on exactly the same date last year, sitting at the same table, and they told us that when they were here last year, they both saw a woman walk down through the restaurant and then turn left and walk through a wall. They said they hadn't said anything last year, as they'd felt a little bit embarrassed by it. We've had a report of something here tonight. We've had a couple at Table 11 who are spiritualists, and the husband was telling me that as they were eating, something touched him. He asked the spirit to leave them alone as they were trying to eat, and he didn't experience anything else. We don't go looking for the ghosts that reside here. We've been here for 20 years now and we just accept that they're here. Things happen here so often that we've probably forgotten more stories than we can remember. One medium picked up on a former blacksmith who sits at table 9 in the back corner of the restaurant and he said to us, through the medium, that he is very pleased to see that we are continuing his work in his building. We thought this was strange because, of course, we're not blacksmiths, so we wondered what he meant by this. The medium took Pat's hand and put a symbolic key into her hand, as requested by the blacksmith, and closed her fingers over it. We later made further inquiries and we found out that back in the old days, most villagers would have had its own blacksmiths, and the blacksmith's building was always a warm place because of the work that was done there. Men would go out into the fields, and after work people would congregate in the smithy as it was nice and warm. It was like the community centre of its day. So it may well be that the message the blacksmith passed on to us was because his building was a social place, a place where people went and enjoyed themselves, and this is what happens here on a daily basis now. This is the kind of experience which is much more important to us, 
getting a personal message like that is a wonderful thing. We had one ghost hunting group that came in a few years back, and it was around 1am and we were sat around table 7 and we all joined hands. One of the female members of the team claimed to be a medium, and after a short while she appeared to become possessed. Suddenly this big booming male voice came out of her and shouted, It wasn't me, I didn't do it, I'm innocent, and repeated this for a number of minutes. Then she came out with a name. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's not a name that I've ever heard associated with this building before. The obvious name for her to have picked up on would of course be Robert Hazlitt, the ghost that everyone associates with the blacksmith's table. This girl had been possessed for a while and the rest of her team, including her boyfriend, were terrified and becoming increasingly worried about her, so they tried to bring her out of the trance. The evening ended and we thought of nothing more of it. The name the girl had come out with was interesting, but it was not a name we'd heard before, so it didn't seem overly impressive. A couple of years later I bumped into a local lady who was very keen on history, and she told me that she'd been doing some research into Washington and into the blacksmith's table. We got chatting and she said, Did you know Robert Hazlitt wasn't his real name? I asked what she meant, and she went on to explain that Robert Hazlitt had been one of his aliases, in the same way that the most famous highwayman of them all, Dick Turpin, had also used the name John Palmer. Robert Hazlitt's real name was in fact the name that the medium at the ghost hunt came out with when she appeared to be possessed by Hazlitt. When you get some information like that over the space of two years, and the people are not connected, that's very interesting, and further proof of Hazlitt's ghost remaining here. When we first opened the building as a restaurant, I had a local artist paint the scene of a highwayman being arrested here in the old smithy. I was really pleased with it and hung it on the wall, where it remains to this day. The week I hung it up, we had an incredibly good week for no apparent reason. Whether it was coincidence, or whether it was in some way Robert Hazlitt repaying us to show us that he approves of the painting, we'll never know. Every year on the anniversary of the blacksmith's table we have a party, and every year I always make a speech, and at the end of my speech we drink a toast to Robert Hazlitt, and the other spirits that call this building their home. People have asked why we don't get the building exercised, but who are we to do something like that? They were here before we arrived, and they'll be here for a long time after we've gone. They don't cause us any problems, and they seem to have accepted us, in the same way that we've accepted them. The Ship Isis The Ship Isis on Silksworth Row in Sunderland opened in 1885, and this Victorian Grade 2 listed pub has been a popular watering hole for the people of the area ever since. Its name has long been a topic of debate with some, including the pub's own Facebook page, claiming it was named for an Egyptian goddess. Indeed, there is an Egyptian goddess called Isis. She was a major goddess in ancient Egyptian religion. She was first mentioned in the Old Kingdom, around 2686 to 2181 BC. And she's one of the main characters in the Osiris myth, in which she resurrects her slain brother and husband, the divine king Osiris. She was believed to help the dead enter the afterlife, as she had helped Osiris and she was considered the divine mother of the pharaoh, who was likened to Horus. But if this is the reason for the name, then where does the ship part of the name come from? Another school of thought is that it was named for its relationship with the nearby docks and the shipbuilding industry, and local legend would have us believe that it was a favourite with smugglers, and that there's a secret tunnel in the lower reaches of the pub which runs down to the river. It may have been named for a Roman ship called the Isis, 
that operated on the Mediterranean during the Roman Empire in around 150 AD, carrying grain from Egypt to Italy. The Isis was an enormous vessel of 55 metres long, or 180 feet, and had a beam of 13.7 metres, which is 45 feet. Its cargo hold was 13.4 metres deep, or 44 feet. Some say that the pub was called the ship, and the Isis element was added because the crew of a ship called the Isis drank in the pub. Credence has added to this theory as there was a boat in the Isis belonging to the port of Newcastle at the time. It had originally been built in Hull in 1862. In August 1855, the same year that the pub opened, the Isis collided in the North Sea with a ship called the Edgeworth, which belonged to the port of Cardiff. It had set sail from the River Tees in Middlesbrough and was en route to Bilbao in Spain. The Edgeworth was struck by the Isis. There was one fatality, but the rest of the Edgeworth crew was picked up by the Isis and brought back to the dock at Newcastle. Whatever the origins of its name, it has undergone many name changes in the 137 years since it first opened its doors, including being called Livingston's and the Purple Banana during the 1990s, and it suffered from periods of neglect and disuse. In 2011, it was lovingly restored by the Jarrow Brewery, and the ship Isis reopened. In 2019, it looked like it might be forced to close again, with the Hartlepool-based Cameron's Brewery closing the doors, but thankfully it was taken over and continues to serve the people of Sunderland to this day. And in the last decade or so, it has developed a growing reputation as being one of the town's more haunted drinking establishments. The ship Isis is said to be the haunt of the region's most notorious serial killer, Mary Ann Cotton. During the 40 years that she lived, she was responsible for at least 21 murders, including three of her four husbands, a lover, and 11 of her 13 children. They were poisoned with arsenic, which amazingly was available to buy at the chemist. Though the victims would at first display signs of what was thought to be gastric fever, upon their death she would collect their life insurance policy. She was only caught when she tried to have her husband, Frederick Cotton's final son, seven-year-old Charles, committed to a workhouse. Frederick Cotton himself had just died. She was told the only way that Charles would be accepted would be if she too accompanied him. She said the boy was poorly and, and I quote, I won't be troubled long, he'll go just like the rest of the Cottons. Five days later, young Charles was dead. But this raised suspicion as he had seemed fine just five days earlier. So an inquest was carried out, especially when the local newspapers latched onto the story and soon discovered the extraordinary number of people close to her that had died, all appearing to die of gastric fever. The bodies of her recent victims were exhumed and arsenic was found in their stomachs. But this wasn't evidence enough to convict her of murder. Dr. William Byers Kilburn, the doctor who had performed Charles's autopsy, had kept samples from the little boy's stomach and tests showed that they contained arsenic. He told the police who arrested Mary Ann Cotton and procured exhumation of Charles's body. She was charged with his murder, although the trial was delayed as she was heavily pregnant with her 13th child. On March the 24th, 1873, she was hanged in the open at Durham Prison in front of an assembled crowd. The executioner, William Calcraft, had not left a high enough drop. Some believe this was done intentionally. So instead of dying instantly, Mary Ann was strangled to death over several minutes. Mary Ann Cotton's name soon entered the folklore of the region's history and as the decades passed she was best remembered in a children's skipping rhyme. 
Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and she's rotten, lying in bed with her eyes wide open. Sing, sing, or what should we sing? Mary Ann Cotton, she's tied up with string. Where, where, up in the air, selling black puddings a penny a pair. Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and forgotten, lying in bed with her bones all rotten. Sing, sing, what can I sing? Mary Ann Cotton, tied up with string. Mary worked and lived all over Sunderland during her life. So what connection she would have to the site of the ship Isis isn't clear. But in an often repeated tale, it's been written that she hid the bodies of two of her murdered children in the tunnels beneath the pub leading down to the River Weir. This is the cause of the woman in Victorian clothing that exudes pure evil that is seen, as well as the two toddlers who cower in fear from her. Crying, screaming and children singing are all heard in the lower reaches of the pub and all are attributed to Mary Ann Cotton and the two children whose bodies were never found, and remain hidden beneath the ship Isis. However, this quite frankly isn't true. Firstly, Mary Ann Cotton was executed 12 years before the ship Isis was built, and although it is possible that any tunnels that lie beneath the pub could predate the building, Mary Ann Cotton didn't hide the bodies of her victims. There was no need, as until she was caught, they'd all appear to die of gastric fever and she wouldn't be able to claim their life insurance if there was no body to prove they were dead. That said, if Mary Ann Cotton and her children aren't haunting the ship Isis, then who is the Victorian-era lady who is seen here? Who are the children who are seen and heard in the dead of night when the pub is closed and the drinkers have staggered home? What is the cause of bottles and glasses being angrily thrown from the bar much to the amazement of onlookers? Marsden Grotto in 1782, Jack Bates, an unemployed miner from Allendale, moved to Marsden in South Shields looking for work. Without the money to buy a house, he discovered the many caves hidden within Marsden Bay's limestone cliff face, and set about expanding one of them with explosives, until it was a good size for himself and his wife to live in comfortably. This earned Jack the nickname of The Blaster. Jack found it hard to come by work, and it's believed that in order to earn money, he may have had illicit dealings with the many smugglers who came ashore at Marsden Bay, and had used the cliffs for centuries to hide their contraband. In 1788, Jack carved out stone steps from the beach to the cliff top. It's believed the steps at Marsden Bay to this day are the original ones made by Jack over 200 years ago, and they still carry the name Jack the Blaster's Stairs. In 1792, Jack the Blaster died, and his widow moved away from the area, leaving their unusual home empty. Peter Allen decided to move into the cave in 1826, expanding it further and making it more accessible. During the excavations, 18 human skeletons were uncovered, believed to be the remains of smugglers who had met their end due to their unlawful dealings and in most instances likely to have been double-crossed by their own kind. The improvements took a number of years, but Allen successfully constructed a two-storey cave complete with a basic kitchen and it was opened as an inn named the Tam O'Shanter, renamed shortly after to the Marsden Grotto. The inn proved popular with the smugglers of the day, and the new landlord turned a blind eye to their illegal activities, often hiding cargo for them, in return for their valued custom. In 1849, Peter Allen passed away, and his wife and children continued to run the inn. There were several freak eye tides which hit Marsden Bay during the 1850s, resulting in the death of several smugglers on the beach and in the caves, and also flooding the Marsden Grotto, resulted in costly repairs on each occasion. In 1865 a cliff face collapsed, damaging the inn considerably. 
1874 the Allen family left the Marsden Grotto. The business was taken over by Sidney Milne's Hawks, and improvements were made to the interior and to make the building structurally sound. Marsden Grotto was then sold on at the Vaux Brewery in 1898. They installed the lift and ran the business successfully for over a century, before selling it on in 1999. Today the Marsden Grotto is still a very popular and unusual restaurant and bar. The Marsden Grotto is the only cave bar in Europe, and it's an amazing place. There are rumours of hidden rooms within the grotto just waiting to be discovered. It also has a fearsome reputation in the area for its hauntings. Banging, whispering and screaming have all been heard. Sightings of fully formed apparitions are commonly reported, attributed to the building being steeped in violence, double-crossing and cruelty. In the 1840s, a smuggler willingly sold information to an HM customs officer. Other smugglers got word of this and confronted him one rainy night on the beach outside of Marsden Grotto. The smuggler knew that if they knew the truth they'd kill him. He made a run for it but he was quickly caught. He begged for his life but the captor showed him no mercy, raining blows down on him and breaking his arms and legs in multiple places. They then put him inside of a barrel used for transporting their illegal goods, barely large enough for him to fit inside. They nailed the lid shut as he became hysterical pleading with them to stop. They placed the barrel deep inside one of the caves in the cliff face, where he was left to die. His screams of desperation and hunger were heard for several days until he died. It is believed that the barrel was never recovered, and the dead smuggler's skeletal remains are still inside that barrel to this day, hidden in one of the many caves at Marsden Bay. On stormy nights as the rain lashes down and the wild wind blows, his ghost can still be heard screaming out in terror. Several years later an HM customs officer went to Marsden Grotto and befriended a smuggler who was a regular customer, the smuggler unaware of his new friend's occupation. The officer showed a keen interest in how the smuggler earned his money and asked a lot of questions. The smuggler trusted him and told all. He eventually realised what was going on and a fight broke out between the pair. The smuggler was shot and he died in the inn. Peter Allen emptied the smuggler's tankard and nailed it to the wall, proclaiming that if anybody should drink from the tankard they would be cursed, and if the tankard was removed from Marsden Grotto, the ghost of the dead smuggler would return and haunt the building forevermore. The tankard on display today is not the original, it's a replica. The original vanished many years ago, leading many to believe that the curse that the ghost of the murdered smuggler still remains at the grotto to this day, is responsible for much of the inexplicable phenomena reported on almost a daily basis. I spoke to Suzanne Hitchinson, a medium, about an investigation at Marsden Grotto in 2005 that she was asked to partake in. I had wandered off into the restaurant of the grotto to do some meditation, to see if I could pick up on any information from the spirits present. I quickly relaxed, and found myself travelling through some mist in my mind's eye, and then a face of a man came at me in the mist. I heard one of my colleagues shout on me and I came around. He seemed pretty shaken up as he told me that as he came up the stairs he had seen what appeared to be a mist coming out of my face. This terrified me and I vouched that I would never meditate alone like that in any location again. The other incident I had there was in the cave bar. We were sitting quietly waiting for any spirits to make themselves known when I saw what appeared to be a black silhouette standing next to the pool table. I was with another medium who also confirmed that he could see this black mass. We sat and watched it for about 40 seconds before it disappeared. The Marsden Grotto undoubtedly has a truly fascinating bloody past 
to match any building in the region. However, Marsden Bay itself could claim to have an even more impressive history, and in particular, the legend of its very own sea monster, the Shawnee. Belief that a sea monster lurks beneath the North Sea in Marsden dates back to the 9th century, when the northeast of England was under the control of the Vikings. The Shawnee is a Viking name, and the Norsemen took the threat of the monster very seriously. In order to pass by Marsden Bay safely, they would offer a human sacrifice to the Shawnee. The crew members would draw lots, and the loser would have his hands and feet trussed and his throat slit, and then thrown overboard. The Vikings believed that the Shawnee would take the sacrifice to his underwater lair, and allow the Viking longships to pass. This tradition was carried on by Scandinavian sailors until well into the 12th century. Bodies were washed up all along the northeastern coastline, as far north as Lindisfarne. Sometimes they were untouched, but others were half-eaten. The last body washed up at Marsden Bay was in 1928. Despite the Shawnee appearing to be a mythical beast, feared by superstitious Vikings almost 1200 years ago, there have been a large number of reported sightings of an unusual sea creature at Marsden Bay over the years. I spoke to Mike Hallowell, author of several books, including being co-author of The South Shields Poltergeist, one family's fight against an invisible intruder, and he told me of his potential sighting of the Shawnee in August 1998. I was driving along the coast towards Whitburn with my father and my wife, when I looked towards the sea at Marsden Bay. About 30 yards from the shore was a huge brown hump, just breaking the surface of the water. Although only a small hump appeared to be above water level, I could see a much larger area just beneath the surface. I thought that I must have been seeing things, so I shouted to my wife to take a look to see if she could see it too. My wife could also see it, although neither of us knew what it could be. We parked at the next opportunity and looked out to sea again. It was still there. It had completely vanished beneath the water, but through the waves we could see its brown colour. Although the shape was indistinct, after what seemed like no more than a couple of minutes we lost sight of it. When we arrived home, we saw the front page of that evening's Shields Gazette, which was of a dolphin that had been seen at Marsden Bay, and had been nicknamed Daphne the Dolphin. We both thought that we may well have seen Daphne for ourselves. However, the creature we saw was far too big to be a dolphin, and it was also the wrong colour. I then received a phone call from a local councillor on an unrelated matter, and I happened to mention Daphne the dolphin, and that I thought I may have seen her, although I explained that what I saw seemed much larger than a bottlenose dolphin. Funny you should mention that, said the councillor. I was buying some fish and chips in South Shields, when I overheard two men in the queue talking about the dolphin. I overheard one of them say, No way was that a dolphin. What I saw could have swallowed a dolphin in one gulp. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at @howhauntedpod, or over on Instagram at @howhauntedpod, where you will see photographs galore relating to the haunted pubs of Tyne and Weir. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me at rob at how-haunted.com. If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early ad-free access to episodes, and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, ghost stories, and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with actual audio from the ghost hunt. 
What's more, there is a free 7 day trial to the £3 tier, so you could get access to the Halloween Patreon episode which was the Golden Fleece in York, as well as all of the other special episodes, which include the National Railway Museum, Dalhousie Castle Hotel, the York Dungeon and Haggerston Castle Holiday Park. You can also get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate £2 to help the podcast at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information and links are in the podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out we're heading to London, and we're turning our attention to a transport system used by over a billion people every year. But how many of those daily commuters or tourists visiting England's capital are aware of the station where children's crying is heard, followed by the sounds of people running and screaming? What about the ghostly black nun? And what was the cause of the incredible photo from 1983 of a young boy excitedly riding the train, and behind him, in the reflection in the window, is a man being put to death in the electric chair? Let's find out all about this and more, much more, next week, when we look at the ghosts of the London Underground. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question... How haunted.